0: Welcome back to another episode of the Shakespeare series brought to you by My Entertainment World. Today we're talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, you would think that we would have done A Midsummer Night's Dream earlier rather than as episode, like, I don't know, what are we at, 20 or something? Um, but it's a play that, though extremely popular, I've never really personally connected with. There's elements of it that I've seen work in certain productions. I tend to really like the Athenian lovers. Um, sometimes I've found the mechanicals okay, but like it depends on the production really. And as a whole, it's never really connected with me. Um, So it was really important to me to find someone who I wanted to talk to, who it really connects with. Um, Someone who really, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is really close to their heart. And for that, I found Gabby Grice. I adore Gabby Grice. I think she's so smart and so funny and so interesting. And she's got so much to say. Um, and I think it's really interesting that her favorite Shakespeare play is A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I really wanted to sort of unlock her brain as to why, um... So the first time I ever saw Gabby Grice was in a Shakespeare play, was in my favorite Shakespeare play, which is As You Like It. Um, And then I really got to know her doing the Corona Cold Reads Shakespeare readings um, and all the other readings that came after. But we really started with Shakespeare. She was our troubadour and she did all of the the singing roles and she wrote original musical recaps to help us through the Henriad. Um, and she played tons of great roles. She was a legendary Cleopatra. And one of her roles was she was really, really fantastic in our reading of A Midsummer Night's Dream where she played Lysander. Um, a female Lysander is something that I actually really like. Um, all of the, a lot of the best productions I've seen have had a female Lysander. Well, not a lot, actually, it's pretty rare, but some of the best productions I've ever seen, probably more accurate to say, um, have had a female Lysander, and Gabby was uh, was very wonderful in the role. And um, so it's really interesting to get to talk to her about this play um, that I've never quite understood. And so having someone to really unlock it with their love of it, I think, is um, not only really helpful, but it's also kind of the heart of this series, is I specifically wanted to talk to people I find interesting about the plays that they like the most um i've I've really tried to keep people on the topic of their favorites so um yeah it was really cool to talk to her about this play and uh, i hope you enjoy our discussion see you on the other side um so i always start these things with um wikipedia in their first like not even the plot description but in the first opening paragraph of their page for each play they have like a really hyper simplistic two sentence kind of plot summary and i like to start with those um so that we don't get too in the weeds with plot but that everybody knows what we're talking about and then also because i find it interesting to like assess whether or not we think that what they say the play is about is what the play is about so uh wikipedia says the play consists of multiple subplots that revolve around the marriage of theseus and Hippolyta. One subplot result revolves around a conflict between four Athenian lovers, one about a group of six amateur actors who have to act out their interpretation of the play Pyramus and Thisbe at the wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta. These subplots take place in a forest inhabited by fairies who control the characters of the play. Thoughts and feelings? I mean, that's pretty much what happens. I don't know. Do the fairies control them? That seems strong. It does seem really <laughs> strong and like very sinister, which there are definitely ways to do midsummer where it's like very sinister. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that's and also like I don't think that Quince is can, you know, like there's more to the players than bottom and most of them don't even meet fairies at any point. Yep. I don't know. I think it does feel strong, but it's, you know, a complicated plot to fit into three sentences. So maybe we can give Wikipedia author 472 a break. I think it gets like a seven and a half to an eight out of 10. Okay. That's not bad. That's yeah. fine. Honestly, on the grand scale of, of, um, interpretations of Midsummer Night's Dream that I've seen seven and a half is solid. <laughs> but I <laughs> love Midsummer, you know, for but me, but, seven and a half is low. One of the, for all of the ones you've seen? Um, no, Jesus. I can't even remember the last production production I've seen of this. Oh, it's God. been a lot of movies. Yeah, that'll do it because I, <laughs> one of the things I don't like about Midsummer Night's Dream is that it's produced very badly, very often. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, can can I, I swear? Yeah, so I stop. Go for it. I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> do whatever you want. But, uh, yeah, I just, it's, I've sat through so many bad ones that I start to really resent it, Yeah, Um, which is not a textual thing. Like, it's not in the text. There are some things that I don't like in the text, but mostly it's a pretty innocent thing, and all the good stuff is still there in the text, but none of the bad stuff that productions add is there. I agree with you. I was having this uh, conversation with James about... Um, the fairies and how often they get really really sexualized Mm -hmm. and I'm like yeah I mean I guess that's the easy way to go they're like creatures that aren't of earth and so they're gonna be really sensual and but when they make them really sexual like bondagey where like the changeling boy is like their manservant now. I'm always like, oh wait, <laughs> where did we get any of this information? That seems like a like a choice that's just being like forced onto it. That works because they're fairies, so it's like I guess fairies all fuck each other. But it, like, why? Yeah. Um. Let's return to interpretations of the text in a second. Back up and can you tell us a little bit about your history with Shakespeare and why this play was what you wanted to talk about? Yes. So my history with Shakespeare is basically, uh, I was a theater kid in high school and then I went to theater school, classical theater school. We loved Shakespeare very much. Um, uh, That's probably my history with Shakespeare. I've done a few Shakespeare plays as any, you know, indie Toronto theater person has done. Um, and I just love Midsummer. It was my favorite when I was young. I think the Stanley Tucci movie is what really pushed it over the edge. I used to watch it so frequently. Um, and I like Midsummer because I find it to be sort of like a psychedelic fantasy romp in the forest. And that really speaks to me now and still. (laughs) And I just, I love it. Yeah. Um, So I'm intrigued by this idea of you calling it the Stanley Tucci film, Um, because there are, it's an all-star cast, that classic, I think it's like 1997 or something like that film. It's really well-made, but there's so many stars in it. What is it about, is it that you particularly like Puck, or you particularly like Stanley Tucci, Or why Stanley Tucci? Um, well, I had to definitely actively fight against calling it the Christian Bale one, because that's obviously where my brain's going to go. And nobody would understand that because who gives a shit about Demetrius? But yeah, I think it's either the Stanley Tucci or the Kevin Klein one. And I think mostly that's um, because I love Stanley Tucci. He is like one of my favorite actors. Puck, to me, is kind of midsummer. He's, like, that central, the glue that sort of holds it all together, that all of the stories web out from a little bit, rather than Theseus and Hippolyta. Mm -hmm. um, Who have, like, four lines. Exactly. The David Strathairn midsummer. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, uh, but I think also marketing-wise, I think I remember when the movie came out and the big marketing push was obviously around him, Kevin Klein, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Who played Oberon? I've completely forgotten. Rupert Everett. Oh yeah, oh I love Rupert Everett. Yeah, perfect. Um, well, the re the reason I ask that is, do you have a favorite character in Midsummer? Because it is so, or even not even necessarily character, but it is so segmented. I feel like there are like like I'm an Athenian lovers person. They are what I get out of Midsummer. Um, there are people who love mechanicals, there are people who love fairies. I imagine there are no people who like Theseus and Hippolyta, but, like, what is it that anchors you to this text, and who's, whose story do you follow? Um, it's changed. Like, as I've gotten older, it's it's evolved. Um, so, when I was younger, because I've done Midsummer a lot of times, like, multiple times, like, as a child, in theater school readings like many readings I I told you I was doing one on Wednesday like it's it's lots of midsummer, and so I think when I was young uh it was uh, Helena all the way like a hundred percent like that was girls think they're eponine. exactly (laughs) exactly um I also really like the fact that Helena has to literally use magic to get the boy and that made sense to me as a 16 year old girl I was like none of the boys like me I guess I need to use magic where are my fairies um so it was really it was Helena and then I think as I got older and I realized that the lovers aren't the be-all and end-all when it comes to most Shakespeare plays and definitely this one it was Titania obviously Queen of the Fairies um and now I don't know I think maybe it's come back to the mechanicals when I was younger I played Quince and I'm really sad that I was too focused on not being helena that i didn't quince is such a good role Mm -hmm. so i don't know that i have a favorite anymore and when we did it i was lysander and you know i was like obsessed with a girl lysander like i don't know if i have a favorite now i think i i'm a fan of a lot of them including theseus and hippolyta Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons Um, well, to go back to female Lysander, that was something I wanted to talk about. This is a play I think that opens itself up really well to, uh, Casting it unconventionally and finding new layers in the characters and the interpersonal dynamics through casting it unconventionally. Um, I also love a female Lysander, which is why I did that um, and gave you that part. Uh, Stratford's production that actually was the first time I saw female Lysander also had a deaf Aegeus. Um, interesting little things like that that I think um, both of those decisions helped make a lot more sense of act one scene one that is a scene that I struggle with in contemporary productions um, because a lot of the sort of politics of marriage stuff that is in the story doesn't translate if you're all in modern dress and it like why you kind of have to suspend your disbelief but having a queer relationship and having communication issues because I think one of the things they did in the midsummer was that like not everybody spoke, it was like sele- some people had ASL and some people didn't. And so like people couldn't necessarily communicate with geus. and mm-hmm. there was all sorts of really interesting ways that that informed that relationship and that central conflict. Um, so what are some of the interesting interpretations of the characters and different ways we can read them that you think has helped this the play stay relevant through so many iterations and being so popular for so long? yeah i i agree with you i think that i think that the way that it is written now if you contemporize it the the relationship between the four of them is is strange there there does need to be at the time there didn't need to be anything it could just be like Aegeus was like i don't want you to marry lysander i just like don't like the the way he looks or whatever but i think if you're gonna if you're gonna contemporize it you do need something and and Yeah, I think a queer relationship is not, I don't want to say easy, but it's, that is almost, even in this day and age, sort of the most obvious way to make the relationship between Hermia and Lysander taboo, or like, not what Aegeus wants, him pushing her towards a man. Um... The other interesting thing too, is that depending on the interpretation, there have been people that have read it. Hermia is supposed to be black as well. And so that's an interesting thing, like, because as we know, I mean, especially this summer, like interracial relationships can also still sort of create this intense lack of communication. And so there's that too. I also think the fairies, like, the fairies at the end of the day are outsiders. And I think if um, they, and even though they're like super glamorous or whatever, it doesn't mean they're not outsiders. It just like, they're not part of the main core group of people that run Athens and are like, they literally live in the forest (laughs) and aren't of earth. And so I think um, when you focus on the fairies being, Outsiders, rather than controlling, as the Wikipedia article says, controlling the narrative or whatever. That that also helps, and I don't know. I'm not a director, so I don't I don't know how I would want to see that represented. Um, but I have said many times that I think this is like a psychedelic romp. I just said it like 15 minutes ago, um, and so I, sometimes I like when the fairies are just sort of like these weirdo. Like, I don't know, I guess rock stars, maybe. Maybe that's a little too on the nose for me, but yeah. The 2009 Stratford one explicitly did that. They were all sort of like rock stars um, and they were all reminiscent of various sort of icons. Puck had a very Bowie esque kind yeah. of deal. Yeah. Um, it's certainly an interesting perspective. Like, and I mean, it's such a weird. You you sort of apologized when you said that they were glamorous, but also outsiders. And actually, I think that like a lot of sort of famously glamorous people have often been outsiders. Like the people when you say the word glamorous, I think of like rock stars and I think of mm-hmm. drag queens. And like yeah. you know, I those are the first two groups that pop into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is something. Because the decision to be over the top glamorous and well, I mean, I guess there's different interpretations of the word glamorous because you can be like Grace Kelly glamorous, but like the, what I think of as being sort of like, high glam, like, yeah, glam more than glamorous, which is a slightly small difference yep. is such a purposeful choice that is going to make you stand out. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain comfort level with like, you're someone who's comfortable standing out or you're not yeah I don't know I think there is something there that's kind of an interesting theory with the fairies, yeah, I think that's exactly that's exactly it. They're all very comfortable standing out and not, and they're all very comfortable like there's no at no point, I guess except maybe you know their obsession with the changeling boy, which I think is like them being sort of obsessed with this idea of like a family unit that's my. That's how I have always seen that. But um, besides that, they're just like, yeah, we're fucking fairies. Like, we're great. We have glitter and we listen to David Bowie. I imagine they all listen to David Bowie. Oh, certainly. And like T-Rex, yeah. Certainly. Big time. Um, which, though, leads me to question this idea of, like, like, it sounds like you have a fairly positive view of the fairies. Um, there are a lot of people who we'll get to a sec in a second, the idea of controlling and sort of meddling in other people's lives. But something occurred to me today when I was making my notes that, you know, if you're familiar with the Tempest, so much of the Tempest, like it's, excuse me, <clears throat> that one's kind of a- overtly about col- uh, colonization. And so through that, the whole issue of Ariel and Ariel's freedom Um, comes up explicitly in that text but when you actually think about like their function in the story Ariel and Puck are extremely similar characters but we never talk about that with Puck the idea of like what is this servitude and Puck never seems to yearn for any sort of freedom but at the same time every single thing he does in the text uh, except for the stuff he does by mistake was on an order from Oberon Um, Has that ever occurred to you before, this idea of, like, what is the difference between Ariel and Puck? And is Puck sort of a truly free character? So I don't know the Tempest at all. Um, So I can't, like, I can barely... I know roughly, like, the rough outline of what the plot is about, but I don't know. The anything. easy way to understand it is that Ariel is essentially Dobby. Okay, the heck. Okay. Like, spends the whole time being like, may I have my freedom? If I do this one thing for you, this one final thing, will you grant me your my freedom? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I wonder if... Now, Ariel is... Wants their freedom, and Prospero is like a sorcerer, but a human, right? Yeah. And Puck is you're you're right, a slave to Oberon, who is also a fairy. I guess they're the same. They're the same species, but one's the a, a re like a monarch. I don't know. I just, just, I don't, it's not that I have an answer. I just, it occurred to me today, this like, oh, wait, should we feel more sorry for Puck than we've ever thought to really? Because I feel like we interpret him either as fun or sinister. Yeah. I've never seen him interpreted as someone without agency. I, I would argue that he is either fun or sinister. You generally, like you sort of decide, but, I actually think that that sort of lack of agency is pretty prevalent in everything he does. The the Stanley Tucci one does does do a good job of making it seem like he doesn't have a lot of agency. Uh, and there's even like I think a moment in that uh, movie where he's like whipped, where you actually witness him getting physically abused for something that he did wrong. Um, yeah, I've never thought about that I I don't think he has any agency I think that's just like par for the course but I've never really thought about whether that's okay with him yeah and I think that's a choice that you can get Puck to play um and that maybe people don't think about I think they're too focused on like is he seedy or is he like a fun jokester but because he's a fairy you don't it's almost like because they're the fairies we we often don't actually get depth from those characters in the way even the rock star thing is like not that deep it's cool it's a great thing but you don't often get a lot of depth in the fairy kingdom because they're not humans i think a lot of that has to do with vulnerability right like all the other characters maybe not the mechanical really only the um the two female human characters really one of the ones this is true of but like they express vulnerability through mm-hmm. the play. And so we feel like we know them. There's some, like, their emotions are more complicated. Whereas, yeah, the fairies, they're fine. They're good. They're having this, like, their biggest problem is this little bicker that they're having over some, that kid, whatever. <laughs> I quite, I never understood the changeling boy thing. Because that's also dark and weird. You don't own children. They um. stole that child. Did, oh, no. No, she, oh, shit. I wish I had, um... Titania, like, saves them from Oberon. That's what it is. Oh. I think he is doing something shady. Oh, wow, I should have really brushed up on this. But I think she, like, saves the mother and the boy from Oberon. And Oberon's like, no, that's my boy. And she's like, no. I don't know. Somebody will comment and be like, you're both full of shit. But <laughs> I think Whatever. that's what it is. No, they won't. Um <laughs> <laughs> They won't care. That is what, something that I find so interesting. Like I've seen this play a thousand times and that's never been clear to me. No one's ever emphasized that. Very rarely do you even see somebody really lean into the backstory between Theseus and Hippolyta and the sort of the war and all of that kind of like who Hippolyta is yeah. like all of that stuff gets dispensed with so quickly. It's just sort of like act one MacGuffin, whereas then we spend 45 minutes with Pyramus and Thisbe and like, those aren't our characters. Yeah. And that's maybe something I think that I find irritating about Midsummer is that all of these little pieces along the way that are more complicated. Um, even the conflict between Hermia and Aegeus at the very, very start, like the thing that kicks off everything is kind of dispensed with as set yeah. and then the core of the play tends to be focused on hijinks. And I think that if you reverse that and really gave the weight to the stuff that is complicated, that is there, yeah. um, that would, I don't know. I just feel like this play is badly served so often. I think, I think it's badly served. There is, if the if there's not everything in the text, there are so many historical cues and there's so much historical context. You're right. Like, actually, the most interesting character in this entire play is Hippolyta. And she has, like, three lines. And she's interesting because she's literally like a character from Greek myth. She has this entire thing, this epic history that happens before... This play begins. Um, yeah. Uh, again, I, I hate to come back to this one again, but they do at least bring that in a little bit in the Hermia and as conflict in the Stanley Tucci movie, where you understand that, uh, like, sh- it's Sophie Marceau and she, like, storms out. And that's all you get. And you're meant to infer that Hippolyta feels deeply because clearly she had the same kind of conversation with her dad. Yeah. forcing her to marry Theseus. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is often poorly served. Like there there are actually so many more clues than uh, the simplest of productions will ever pick up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one of the other complicated things that we had talked about a little bit off Mike um, that I do want to get into a little bit is this idea you brought up earlier that Hermia has been interpreted in some productions and by some scholars as having meant, been meant written to be black. Yeah. Um, and some of the ways that the other characters speak to her are, you know, Midsummer is not thought of alongside Taming of the Shrew and Merchant of Venice as one of the ones that we call problematic and director's approach with this sense of like, I have to fix this play. And yet there is so much language in it that is deeply, deeply offensive. A lot of it tied to the way that Hermia is spoken Mm -hmm. to. How do we reconcile that in a play that is ultimately, even though we've been talking about some of these darker themes and some of darker interpretations, ultimately a fun romp in the forest? Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's, um, we were talking about it because we were talking about the, um, like, words that are in Shakespeare that very often get taken out. And, um, and a couple times after Lysander has been, has fallen in love with Helena. Um, he says like, he uses specifically racial terms, um, to describe Hermia and uh, as slanderous, never like, and when we did the read, I was saying to you that I took it out because it was sort of like a first read and we hadn't worked on it. We hadn't like had any kind of discussion and I didn't feel comfortable saying, saying it, but taking that out, depending on how you've decided that you're going to play this relationship between, because casting Hermia is really, really important. I think that cause she's like the hot lover. I think, people just sort of cast her as like the cute girl. And it's like actually quite a bit hinges on how you're casting Hermia. Um, And, and if you have decided to take it in down a route where you want, you want the sort of central focus between Hermia and Lysander, Hermia and Demetrius, Aegeus to be maybe about race. I think actually taking those words away takes away how heinous the shit that Lysander and Demetrius who were in love with her two scenes ago, like how low, how base they get to, to send her away. Um, yeah, but it, but it does really depend. It just depends. It depends on, on the, on the casting. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So that sort of leads me into something I wanted to talk about, which is drugs. Um, I am a big believer that um, the things that you are willing to say and the way that you behave when you're under the influence of whether it's alcohol, drugs, whatever, Mm. that's who you genuinely are. um, And it's just taking away inhibition. So if you're a happy drunk, that's because in your soul that, that that's there. But if you're a really angry person, there is something Like, or if you're really angry drunk, that stuff that is down there that you're just not dealing with and you're doing a good job of hiding the rest of the time. So those terrible things that Lysander and Demetrius say to Hermia, I believe, really reveal something about who they actually are. Um, But I'm wondering if you agree and like, how do you feel about this magical flower drug Um, Do you think that it's revealing real things or if it's turning them into someone they're fully not? And then what are the consequences of that? This idea of, is it a happy ending if Hermia ends up with a man who, whether, you know, regardless of why he said it or what influence he was under, he said those things to her. And then on the other side, Helena ends up with a man who is permanently roofied. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't like, I, I know it's a comedy because it's like fun or whatever, but I don't think this is particularly a happy ending. I think it's happy for Hermia and Lysander because I don't think I agree um, that this is similar to sort of being under the influence. I like to think that this, that Lysander, he needs to, he needs to get there. We need to hear him say these horrible, horrible, heinous based things so that we can feel for Hermia. Because until now, she has kind of just been like the hot one who hasn't done a lot. Who's like, oh my God, help me. So we actually do need to feel that. Um, but I don't think it's the same. I think it is actually closest to being roofied, um, where you, everything has been taken from you. Like you are completely out of control of who you, you are. That it's, it's not anyone. It's not you. It's not who you pretend to be. It's literally no one. Um, that's how I interpret them getting drugged at the end, though. Yeah, Demetrius is drugged for the end of time. That is not a happy ending for those two in any way because even if he stays like that for forever, it begs the question yeah, but what happens in a week? What happens in a year? Like, eventually, he's gonna stop liking Helena because he never did, and it's. It's not a happy ending for those two at all. But I do think the drug is not like alcohol or, or weed or, or even acid really. I think it's like a completely, it is meant to be something mystical that nothing exists in, in life. Right. So it's not a metaphor, it's just magic. I think, I mean, it's, it's possible that you could interpret it as a metaphor because again, depending on how Lysander is, his cast, if you cast him as like, I don't mean to make this gendered, but I mean, why not? Um, if, if, you cast him as sort of like a, like a privileged cis white guy, yeah. And he goes off, then maybe that could be a metaphor for this, like, I don't know, this relationship that's going really well. And I think a lot of women would understand that, that like Buffy angel, Oh my God, he's bad now kind of thing. Um, but I personally, that's not my favorite way of, of interpreting it because I do like the idea that Hermia and Lysander are like just two people who are obsessed with each other for whatever reason are being held back. Yeah. So let's talk about the subplot that we haven't really touched on very much, which is part to say that Quince is great, uh, which is The Mechanicals. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I struggle with the mechanicals because I think they're really fun. I think the early scenes are really great. I think there's a lot to be said there about the nature of actors and the dark, like, ha- they're not, it's not even their nature. It's like a culturally imposed ha- bad habit of actors in the character of Bottom. Um, yes. You know, the more actors you meet, the more you're just like, oh, it's so real. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just like I there's so much fun in the mechanicals and then they drag me down in act five because they always take up too much space which I understand is a commentary on their character and it's a whole thing it's on purpose but it sh- shouldn't be that miserable for me um my question though is that a lot of the sort of like plot points that happen along the way with the mechanicals are based around bottom he's inseparable as a punishment for being inseparable he gets turned into an ass he encounters Titania. He gets turned back from being an ass. He does a play. Is he cha- like does he learn anything at all? He seems to go back to being an ass in the metaphorical way. After yeah. he being an ass in the literal way. What is this journey? Is there a journey? What happened here? Yeah. Um I don't think there's a journey. I think that um, again that's just and the thing about midsummer is that it's so open to so many different interpretations like more so than uh most other shakespeares i don't think that there's a journey but as you probably know about me um i also don't have a lot of faith in uh i know lots of actors like bottom and i have very little faith in them that they can ever be anything other than asses um <laughs> So I feel bad. I think you're meant to feel bad for bottom. Like you definitely, you don't feel bad. And then there is a moment when Titania is sort of goes back to, um, to realizing like what's happened where I think you, you feel bad for him, but yeah, I do not think, and I think that that's actually the, the, the commentary is that he has this whole thing you the audience who hates this character uh, feels empathy and then he just reverts immediately back to who he is that's that's how i've always uh, seen that character and i think that that's what um shakespeare was was trying to say not everybody changes mm-hmm. you know what i mean like everybody at the end of this play titania and oberon find their love for each other again and helena and demetrius are in love because of magic and then bottom is literally just bottom He doesn't change. That's an interesting interpretation. The idea of, nope, some people don't, can't change. And that being his tragedy. Uh, There's like a a fundamental loneliness to being that self-obsessed. Yes. Interesting. I think so. And like he, that he would interpret what we pity him about with Titania. He probably interprets very differently. It's a little bit like whatever. Oh, poor bottom. It's a little, Trumpian Mm -hmm. a little bit like he goes through these things that from the outside eye you'd be like how has this not changed you I feel pity for you how is this not changing you and then at the end of the day he's that's who he is he's so obsessed with himself yeah yeah okay I always end these on the same question but before we get to that is there anything else you wanted to say about Midsummer? ugh I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think I am going to think so much now about that puck being stuck in servitude thing. Like you really cracked something open and also Titania too. Like is she, she's enslaved by Oberon as well. So that is something that I have never thought about it. I thought I'd thought everything about Midsummer Night's Dream, but no, I have nothing else to add okay. except that you broke my brain. Yes, that was cool. Hopefully, you'll be able to put it back together because I don't want to live without it. Here's my question at the end of the day, we started with what happens in Midsummer, what the plot is, but at the end of the day, what is Midsummer Night's Dream about? Oh, this is going to sound really, really corny. Really corny, but Jesus, I think, oh, man, I think Midsummer Night's Dream might, in a way, oh, jeez, Kelly! I mean, in a way, for some of the characters, the characters that I love, it is kind of about, like, sticking to your guns. I don't know. I know this comes back to Hermione and Lysander again, but they like go through hell and back just to like be with the person that they love. Um, and it kind of feels like all of the characters go through hell and back just to be with the people that they love, um, including Theseus and Hippolyta and this like 10 lines of dialogue. And so I think, I think that might be it. I don't know how to distill that down to one theme but it feels like all of them just go to hell and back just for the people that that they love. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. Myentertainmentworld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.